Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle from The Table in Uniontown. Thanks for tuning into our podcast this week. We're happy you're here. This is the live recording from this Sunday's sermon. We're currently in our sermon series, You've Got Mail, where we discuss the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. We hope that as you listen, you'll more deeply understand the truth of God's word and how much he loves you. Let's jump in. Welcome. You've got mail. It's kind of an amazing sound. <laughs> Unforgettable. I was trying to remember it because a couple weeks ago, actually it might have been a month ago already, Joey asked, you know, do you remember your handle or like, you know, your call sign or whatever we want to call it when AOL came out? Screen name. Screen name that's what we're going with. And I could not remember mine. Like, it had to be something to do with my initials, but I haven't been able to remember it. Um, but I kind of stole um, your, well, borrowed, I guess we're going to call it, not-for-profit AOL, if you're watching, not-for-profit. Um, it's amazing how the Holy Spirit works. Um, thank you, Michelle, again, for leading us in worship. Um, but we talked about already this morning through our songs, God's faithfulness, and that's what we're going to look at today. And we even sang about when he comes, we will proclaim his greatness, how great thou art. Uh, but before we jump into that, um, I want to say I feel very privileged and honored to have the opportunity to share with you from God's word this morning. Um, my name is Harold Mansfield. If you don't know me, I'm the youth pastor at Evermore Community Church. Um, and I picture myself kind of as Joey's older brother. So... Joey's laughing. Um, in many of my interactions with Joey and the other pastors at Evermore, I play devil's advocate. So I'm always giving the opposite side and pushing Joey sometimes hard. He loves Ohio State, which is where I went to school, did my undergrad. So we have that in common. <laughs> uh, but mostly, uh, tr truthfully, one of the things that we have in common is our love for Christmas. So I brought Joey a Christmas gift. He has gotten me gifts before in the past, some of them genuine. Santa, <laughs> Santa apparently has brought me gifts, um, which not a big fan of Santa. St. Nicholas I love, but Joey knows that also. Um, but yeah, I brought Joey a gift this morning. I'd like for you to open this. This is my way of, I want to honor Joey. I love him. Like I said, I view myself as an older brother. We're going to handle a little business before we get into the sermon from Revelation 3. So, Merry Christmas, Joey. I don't, this is to you. I don't know if I've ever been more scared <laughs> to do something in public. Uh, <laughs> do you know anything about older brothers? <laughs> oh, this is beautiful. Yeah. A minor league hat. Yeah, I got your size. It. Got Thank your size. You so much. You're welcome, brother. I'm also not a hugger, so <laughs> this is a big moment. Uh, Joey knows that. It's amazing. So, I was able, again, I wanted to give you a Christmas gift. I wanted to honor you. And I thought, okay, I need to do some research, which I'm pretty good at. The Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs from Allentown, Pennsylvania. Is this familiar? Okay. All right. Oh, people, 
Awesome. So apparently they ran a promotion this year for a space saver hat. I put the internet printout in there. So apparently Allentown, Pennsylvania is a metropolis where people park on the street and you have to use something to save your space in the winter after you've shoveled it out. And so that's what the depiction is on the hat, a shovel and a chair. So it was kind of like Christmas and minor league. Right, right, right. Yeah, Thank you. you're welcome. This is as good as some of the gifts I've gotten you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but love you, brother. Love you more. Thank you so much. So again, this morning, now jumping back into our text, uh, we're going to look at Faithful Philadelphia from Revelation uh, 3, 7 to 13. And I have the privilege, again, of, I don't know how this happened, but Joey gave me the opportunity to share with you the only letter that could rev, like at any way be tied to a baseball team. So I also felt honored by that. Um, Philadelphia, I want to show you a couple of maps to start out with. The first one is from Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, this is important. You can see the line going north as he goes into Macedonia. And then on his return trip, he comes through Ephesus. The seven yellow dots behind me are the church's that the letters to Revelation are written to. The only one he hits is Ephesus. So there's idea that the beginning seeds of the church of Philadelphia are planted on Paul's second missionary journey. But we don't know this for sure. The next slide will show you Paul's third missionary journey. And here we know that if he's not actively planning these churches, he's at least stopping by to encourage some of them. You can see he goes right through Ephesus, and then Laodicea. And so we know that he's cutting right through the heart of this territory where the gospel was gone or the, where he is bringing the gospel in order to, again, strengthen and evangelize, bring the gospel to these churches. And I think this is important because when we get these letters, we know that the churches are already established. And we know um, that they have some sort of history with the gospel. The next slide will show you, um, again, an opportunity to see the geographic or the topographic location of these churches. And I want to take note of Philadelphia, which is almost completely to your right, just flanked by Laodicea. What we see here is a red line, and we'll get to that in a minute. But Philadelphia shows up in Western civilization around 189 to 190 BC when Anicus IV defeated Magnesia and Lydia passed to Pergamene control. This happened under either Eumenes II, king of Pergamum, or his brother Attalus II, which is known as Philadelphus. He was known as Philadelphus for two reasons. One, he was the king's brother. And when given an opportunity to betray his brother and become king himself, he didn't take it. The second opportunity he had was when his brother was out of town. There was a rumor circulating that he was dead and that he should assume the throne. So he assumed the throne and did what he should do, his kingly duty. But upon his brother's return, rather than kill his brother or outcast his brother he rescinded the throne and gave kingship back to his brother, Eumenes. 
things that were kind of unheard of during this time period. And so for that reason, he was called Philadelphus, or lover of your brother. And so that is why we find this name Philadelphia, named after not the city of brotherly love, like we would think of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but after a man who in honor loved his brother so much he refused to betray him. He stayed faithful to his brother, fitting that the church should also be faithful. The nicknames for Philadelphia are Gateway to the East. They have many nicknames. And you can see Gateway to the East again, looking at this slide. What you see in red there is a trade route. It's a road. Not very common in all locations of the Greek or Roman Empire. But you can see all roads lead to Philadelphia, and then they head east over into Asia Minor. So if you wanted to get any trade goods from or to, you had to go through Philadelphia. So it was known as the gateway to the east. It was also known as a missionary city. After taken over by the Greeks, they set up a practice in Philadelphia to spread Hellenism and to promote Greek culture. Because they knew all roads went through Philadelphia. So what better way to spread this practice? It um, peaked at about 19 AD when most scholars recommended that you could barely find anyone not speaking Greek in the city. So they had completely overtaken uh, the Lydian culture there. It was also known as Little Athens because of the temples and the festivals. It was prone to earthquakes. And for this reason, it was given two other nicknames. First, Neo-Caesarea in 17 AD under the emperor Tiberius, when he gave aid after a very, very large earthquake, which destroyed almost the entire city. And he gave aid and tax forgiveness for five years so that the people could rebuild their own city. And then later, after another devastating earthquake, it was known as Flavia, which is uh, the household name of Vespasian. Again, a Caesar who gave aid to uh, Philadelphia. They were in the middle of a vine-growing district, as you can see their location down in the valley. Um, And so Dionysus uh, was their chief pagan cult, the god of wine and vines. On the next slide, as you can see again, uh, the current city of Philadelphia but it gives you an idea of what it looks like only because the current city was built right on top of the old city. There's not a lot of artifacts in this city. There's not a lot of old uh, antiquities uh, because literally they built right on top of them and no one thought any of that stuff was worth anything. Just outside the city, you can see in the picture on your right, um, a lot of grapevines. Again, in the very fertile valley outside of Philadelphia. So, with that in mind, let's dive into the text. Um, I'm going to read verse 7. I apologize, I'm reading from the ESV. Um, It's not because the CSV is bad, it's just because that's what I'm used to. So, Joey informed me already that I'm using an inferior translation, but you guys might have to discuss that later. (laughs) Verse 7, again, um, Revelation chapter 3. And the angel of the Lord in Philadelphia, And to the angel of the Lord in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, 
who shuts and no one opens. So we see a couple things here. The first observation is who is ever speaking is saying that they are the holy one and the true one and who has the key of David. These are obviously just identity markers for the person who's speaking. How do we identify who is speaking this letter? Who is telling us these things? Now, if you have a red letter Bible, you, uh, you know, your observation is it must be Jesus. But since the Philadelphia church didn't have a red letter Bible, when they saw these words written, they identified these words came from the one true God. These words came from Jesus, the Messiah. The Holy One is a Jewish title for God. You can see a bunch of Old Testament references there, as well as a couple New Testament references. And you can see a a reference from the Talmud of 1 Clement. Again, we're finding out, okay, the person who is going to speak the rest of this letter is identifying as the one true God. Further, he says he is the true one. And this is, this is the title that Jesus gives himself. If you've grown up in the church or you're familiar with some of the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, instantly the verse from John 14, 6 might pop into your head where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we find that this person speaking this letter is Jesus, the Messiah, who's identifying as the one true God. Furthermore, he gives us a little bit of a context clue here when he says, who has the key of David. He's talking about entrance into the heavenly kingdom. And here we see um, a verse from Matthew sixteen nineteen, where Jesus says to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Furthermore, Isaiah, we're told that to Eliakim, he gives the key also. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, no one shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. A prophecy that we interpret of Jesus the Messiah. If he tears down, no one can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, no one can open. Again, this from Isaiah 12 is spoken of God the Father. So not only... Are we identifying who is speaking, Jesus the Messiah, the one true God? But we know that he holds the keys to the eternal kingdom. He is the one whom salvation is found. Now, why is this important? And how does this have anything to do with the rest of these verses? Let's look at verse 8. Verse 8, Jesus says, again, the one who holds the keys, the one who's claiming to be God. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The encouragement here that Jesus the Messiah, that God gives the church in Philadelphia, is that I know your works. I see the things that no one else sees. When you give in secret, when you sacrifice in secret, when you pray, when you submit your anger and don't act upon it, I know all of those things. Your secret obedience. And so he commends the church here in Philadelphia. Just like we saw in Smyrna. This is a church that he's commending. He's saying, 
I see what you're doing. Don't relent. Don't relinquish. He knows. He cares when we are faithful. It's not like no one sees and no one notices. God is saying, he sees, he knows, he cares. And this should encourage us. Like Michelle talked about already this morning. For no other reason in that song that we sang. For no other reason, if we see God work in no other way in our future, the mere fact that he has offered us salvation by grace through faith is enough. He's done enough. That's it. That's enough to sustain our faithfulness. That's enough to encourage us to continue to follow him, to do what we know to be right. And when we fail, because we're imperfect humans, to repent and to come back to him and to seek his word. He says, again, I have set before you an open door. Now this is kind of twofold in that, again, as we looked at the map, it's describing Philadelphia's location. They're an open door for the gospel to head east along that trade route. They have opportunity to rub shoulders with people that no one else does. We see that of this individual church. They have a chance to share the gospel with people that no one else might. Not in Ephesus, not in Smyrna, not in Laodicea, right? not in Rome, but in Philadelphia. They have that opportunity. But number two, the second thing we need to look at is Philadelphia's own restoration. Because as we looked at some of the Old Testament prophecies and God saying, this is who I am and I have the keys, we know that this church, many of the members are from excommunicated churches. There are people who have formerly been Jewish who've been kicked out. And so they're feeling excluded and marginalized. And they're not included in the Greek community either because they're not polytheists. They're not a part of the trade guilds that Joey has spoke about. They refuse to worship the emperor and the occult. Okay? So he is saying to them, I have given you restoration. The door of salvation is open to you. Not only for you to share with others, but for you to continually come back to, no matter what you've done or where you've been. And then he describes the church in an interesting way, which some people can see as a derogatory or as a negative. He says, I know that you have but little power, and you have, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. He's describing the church's size, their influence, and even their impact on the people around them. He's saying, I know you don't have a lot of people going to your church. I know there's not a lot of people who are following me and trusting me. And because of that, your impact on the world around you is smaller. Your influence isn't as great as, say, the church in Rome. Yet, with all that, you have still been faithful. You haven't let that impact you in a negative way. You haven't let that discourage you from continuing to follow me. You haven't given up faithfully serving me. And he tells them now in the following verses a threefold reward for their faithfulness. In verse 9, he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, 
I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. The first reward he speaks of is vindication before their foes. And we look at this term, the synagogue of Satan, and I know Joey's already spoke of this, right? There's no reason for us in scripture to hate another group of people. And I'm not speaking negatively about the Jews. But we see interesting here that Paul taught that true Jews or people of God were those who were known for worshiping God both outwardly and inwardly by what they believed. And so when we think about how Christians are now the true Jews, that leaves the Jewish nation as not being true Jews, as not being the people of God. You can see scripture references behind me. And I think what we need to think of, instead of thinking of the Jewish nation or the Jewish people, is thinking of this term as the people of God and not the people of God. Because what we find here is a role reversal. It's an eschatological or an end times reversal. Where the Jewish nation, who were the people of God, are now not because they have denied Jesus as the Messiah. And the Gentiles, who were not people of God, are now people of God because they have accepted Jesus as the Messiah. So we can't get lost in that word, Jews, because Jesus is saying that those Jews are liars by claiming to be Jews. They're claiming to be the people of God, but they're not. And what we find here is that in God's kingdom, there is no middle ground. Now, I don't like that. I like to think of my friends who are not believers as being somehow in this middle limbo section where, you know, they haven't decided one way or the other. And that is true. But we find in Jesus' teaching that you're either for me or you're against me. And so what we find here with this term that we don't like, that we go, oh, do we really want to say synagogue of Satan? Can't we just say it's a non-believing synagogue? We find in this term here that Jesus is saying, look, you're not for me, so you're against me. You're with Satan if you're not with me. There's no middle ground. There's no in-between. A non-decision means that you're currently on the side of Satan. But Jesus continually offers them an opportunity to come to his side, to switch teams, to leave that synagogue, right? And so, again, the reward of vindication before foes lays here for the Philadelphian church. The second reward is the reward of deliverance in this final period of testing. In verse 10 and 11, we are told, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. To, those, to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Again, this reward of deliverance in the final period of testing. And when we hear this, we get excited. We know that because the Philadelphian church has kept his word, even though they're small, we know that this is a descriptive and not a prescriptive term. So Jesus isn't telling this church, if you keep my word, you will earn for yourself salvation and you won't have to endure through this final period of testing and trial. That's not what Jesus is saying. 
Jesus is saying, because you keep my word and as you keep my word, you will be withheld from the spiritual turmoil that you may feel during these last days. Did we catch that? Again, it's not because we keep his word that we earn our salvation or earn our reward. But in keeping his word, we have that reward of deliverance. And he says this, this phrase that um, I think is really, gets us really excited. He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Now this has two interpretations. One, it can refer to, uh, again, an end times rapture. If anyone's old enough to have seen the Left Behind series, um, you know, that con- probably conjures up memories. Um, but the second thing that, again, I think he's speaking more of is this spiritual protection through all of our earthly trials. And this seems to be more consistent across the letters and across the entirety of the gospel and even the biblical word. You can see he made the same promise to Smyrna in chapter 2, verse 10, but he told them that they were going to go through a period of trial for 10 days. Right? He, he says the same thing to the martyrs. In chapter 6 of Revelation, verses 9 to 11. He also shows the same keeping from an hour of trial to the Old Testament characters. And if we look at the high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays for his followers to God the Father. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And lastly, we know J- uh, Jesus famously told Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you le- as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. See, I have to think that maybe the Philadelphian church heard these words, I will keep you from the hour of trial. And they thought, yes, we have the easy way out. All of the things that we've been going through, all of the marginalization and the persecution, the excommunication from the Jewish synagogue, the Gentile rejection, the financial hardships, the hunger, all of the things are going to go away in an instant. Jesus is going to come back. We get the easy way out. It's going to be awesome. We don't have to go through this anymore. But I don't think that's what Jesus means. That's how we would like it. We would like it to be easy. We would like it to be comfortable. We would like it if we don't have to endure trial or suffer. But again, if we look at the entirety of Scripture, we look at the same promise that is given to Smyrna, I think what we're promised is that God's going to be with us through that hour of trial. And that again, by our obedience, by keeping his word, by maintaining our focus on him, by worshiping him, by loving him, by surrounding ourselves with a community of believers, it will make enduring those trials that much easier, that much better, that much sweeter. Because I can't find an Old Testament character or a New Testament disciple in the Bible who didn't have to go through trial or tribulation. I can't find one that got the easy way out. And so I can't expect for myself to just be 
raptured or be taken away without enduring some kind of trial. Because I think in the trial is where we find that our strength is produced. In the trial is where we find that our faith is increased. In the trial is where we find that our fellowship and community increases. And then our love for God increases. Our gratitude to God increases. And our love for one another also increases. Verse 12, Jesus then says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As you can see behind me, the next slide is going to be the temple to Artemis in Ephesus. What do we see? Even 2,000 years later, we see these columns standing, these pillars. If we look at the next slide, the temple to Artemis in Sardis, another city for a letter that we looked at. What do we see? 2,000 years later, these beautiful columns, some of them not as tall as the other ones, but still standing nonetheless. If we look at Pranthium in Ephesus, at the next picture, you can see, again, many columns still standing, many pillars throughout the city. And this is where it gets really cool. Because on the next slide, I know it's difficult to see, but what we find is names of prominent Greeks etched into the columns so that they could be honored culturally for the importance that they had, for the way that they lived their life, and for the things that they had done to either serve the emperor or, again, to promote Hellenistic culture. And it's funny, with these things in mind, that Jesus says, the ostracism that you've experienced, the hardship that you've gone through, and you look around and you say, we are alone, we are small, no one notices, does anyone care? Again, Let's look at verse 12 and 13. The third reward. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. The third reward that Jesus says here, is the reward of security in the coming age. We do not have to doubt our salvation. The Philadelphia church, you don't have to doubt your salvation, your eternal destiny, what is in your future. Though you are surrounded by earthquakes, though you are ostracized, though you've been kicked out of the Jewish synagogue, though you're not accepted by the Greeks, you don't have to doubt what lies ahead of you in eternity. If you keep my word, if you endure as one who conquers, I will make him or her, again, this is gender neutral language, 
a pillar in the temple of my God. This shows stability. This shows permanence. But what we saw here is this shows proof of an alternate kingdom. Just like we've seen the prominent Greeks have their names on the pillars in the fancy temples to their gods. The one true God is saying, no, no, no. I have my own temple. It is myself. It is the place that I dwell in heaven. And I'm going to make you a pillar in it. And I'm going to write your name on that. And I'm going to give you a new name. Again, these are all identity markers. Write on him or her the name of my God. Write on him or her the name of the city of my God. And write on him or her the name of my own new name. Again, Jesus is saying, you belong to God. Your citizenship is in heaven. You belong to me, Jesus, the one who holds the keys to the kingdom. The one who has given his life for you. The one who stands and knocks. Right, as we'll find out a little bit later. These are eternity identity markers in contrast with the earthly identity markers. And I know this has to hit us hard because everywhere we look in America in 2023, there are identity markers. And we stand before and we say, no, I identify as a servant of the one true God, my Savior, Jesus. It's by grace through faith that I'm saved. And I'm a member of his body, the church. I'm led by his spirit, the Holy Spirit. Is that how we identify? Or am I Harold, the youth pastor from Evermore, a graduate of Ohio State, right? a father, a, a son, right? a husband? And yes, I am all those things. But how do I truly identify? At the core of my heart and my soul, my being, who am I? And Jesus says, if we stay faithful to him, if we love him, if we serve him, if we keep his word, that he will give us a place in his kingdom. And he will tell us how we identify. And this will be a stable place, not a place that is shaken by earthquakes. Not a place that needs to be rebuilt and renamed over and over again. No, this has lasting, eternal ramifications. So, what can we learn from Philadelphia? Faithful Philadelphia. Individually, again, as we sang about this morning, these promises are also for us. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you haven't joined his team, entered into his synagogue, surrendered your life and trust to him, I encourage you to do that this morning. Again, there's no middle ground with God. Either for him or against him. If we have already done that, again, these promises are for us. And we must individually strive to be faithful in our one-on-one personal relationship with God. And to fill our lives with repentance and submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because none of us are perfect. We're all going to make mistakes. At some point, we're not going to do the will of God, his desire or his command. 
And then we have to return to him and say, Lord, I have failed. Please, I need your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace. We must do that individually. Because when I stand before God in judgment, my mom's not going to be there with me. My wife's not going to be there with me. My brother, Joey's not going to be there. He'll either be on the other side or behind me in line. But it's just going to be me and God. And the question is going to be, have you trusted in my Lord and or my son, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior? And he's going to know the answer to that question before we give it. And we're going to be either washed by the blood of the Lamb and our sins are going to be forgiven or they're not and we're going to stand guilty. But corporately, for the table, for your church, Philadelphia's faithfulness should motivate us in our own faithfulness as a church. Again, one-on-one, we need to get right with God. One-on-one, we need to have this rhythm of repentance and submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But corporately, as a church, wherever church we are a part of, this should motivate us to be faithful, as we'll find in Revelation 3.13. We should ask ourselves, what can we do to encourage one another? What can we do to show love to one another? What can we do to grow in our relationship with the Lord? Right? If I am working on that personally, I should then be asking, how can I encourage Joey? Or how can I encourage the person sitting next to me or in front of me or behind me? That is what a church is. It doesn't matter how many people you have. It doesn't matter what your music is like. Right? A body of believers encouraging one another. And once we ask those questions, then we should do those things. It doesn't have to be buying someone a gift. It could be telling them that you're praying for them. It could be praying with them. It could be giving them a word of encouragement. Letting them know that you care. It could be sharing a meal together and bringing an amazing dish next Sunday. How do I always seem to miss the meal? Like last time I was here, I missed the meal. and I don't know how that happens. <laughs> um, but if we look at Hebrews chapter 10, and I think this speaks a lot to, again, the application of Philadelphia and how faithful they were. The writer of Hebrews says this, Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, I would encourage you here at the table, continue to be faithful in your personal relationship with God and in your relationship with one another. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this opportunity to come and to be with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I thank you for this place, uh, that there is a group of people who have committed to standing here in Uniontown, who have committed to your word, who have committed to Jesus' lordship, who have committed to being led by the Holy Spirit and directed by your word, who have committed to loving one another. Father, I pray 
uh, that Philadelphia's faithfulness would encourage them this morning and tomorrow and in the weeks and the months to come. I pray, Father, that, that they would know that you have created them to be pillars and you have given them new names and you have etched their names in your kingdom. And Father, with that knowledge, I pray uh, that they would, again, love one another well and they would love you deeply. Father, I pray this morning uh, that your word would go forth from this place, uh, that you would bless them to be a blessing and that we might bring you glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for that, Harold. It's a great word. Um, And as I stand here and and sort of reflect on it this morning and and what Harold said, I think um, a lot of what Harold said was really beautiful and encouraging and and hopeful this morning. As we read these letters, sometimes we're, we're not like hopeful. We're like, Oh, man, and like last week, like I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. And, and that just doesn't really make you feel super good. You're just like, oh, is it me? Is it me? And maybe, maybe you feel a little dead sometimes. Maybe last week you were here and you were like, my goodness, maybe that is me. Maybe, maybe John, maybe Jesus, maybe Joey is is talking about me and you hear Jesus's words I know your works and you're like oh no but then today you hear I know your works and it's all about how faithful this church has been though they're small though they're weak they're faithful And, and when Jesus says I know your works what I hear him say, at least, in like the new Joey translation, which coming out next fall. No, I'm kidding. It's not. Um, what I hear him say is, I see you. I see you. And, and, and what he's saying to this church and what maybe he's saying to you this morning, if you were a little discouraged last week and you're trying to kind of sort through that, he's saying, in the, in the quiet hours of the morning when you're sitting there with an open Bible and an open heart saying, Lord, speak to me, I see you. And when you hear people gossiping at work and you go the other way because you don't want to be a part of it, I see you. And when you let no unclean thing come before your eyes, I see you. And when you really just can't stand this person, but you choose to pray for their flourishing and and even try to contribute to their flourishing, because that's what it means to love someone, to love your enemy. He's saying, I see that too. I see you. I know your works. So this morning, be encouraged by that. If you're starting to think about those things and thinking like, I do things too for the Lord, but no one appreciates them. No one sees them. Jesus sees you. And one day, Harold pointed out, you'll stand before God in judgment. And the only question that's going to be asked is, it's not how much did you sin, and that'll be, that'll be held against you if, if the answer to this question isn't right, but it's, did you trust Jesus as Lord? That's the only thing that's going to matter. If so, you're covered in his blood. But, but the, the question is like maybe a little deeper, like what does it mean to, um, to trust Jesus as Lord? 
It doesn't mean that you responded in a Billy Graham crusade, not to bring Billy Graham back up, oh, no. but not did you respond to a Billy Graham crusade invitation in 1974 and you haven't given a rip about Jesus since. What does it mean to have trusted Jesus? Well, it's at the end of like every one of these letters to the one who conquers. And the one who conquers is simply just the one who keeps the faith, the one that, as we've said over and over again, the one that keeps going until the end, keeps going until they take their last breath, whether for them it meant in the Colosseum at the end of a spear or being devoured by animals, or for us whether it means on a, on a hospital bed at 90-some years old, whatever it means to take your last breath, were you faithful? Did you trust Jesus till the end? And when you do that, however imperfect that might look, he sees you. He knows your works, and you're one of the conquerors. And we can conquer because Jesus conquered first, and we remember that every week. When we take communion, we remember this Jesus who on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and after giving thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he said, this is a new covenant in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. And so every week here at the table, we take communion by taking the bread, dipping it in the cup, and remembering Jesus, remembering how he went before us, how he conquered first so that we might conquer too. And so this morning, we're going to take part in this practice that the church has taken part in forever, remembering Jesus together. And so we take communion here at the table by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup and just remembering the one that conquered first, conquered death, conquered sin. And so if you need gluten-free communion, that's in the back on my right, uh, just the sort of normal communi communion elements in the back on my left. We're just gonna take time to, to sit uh, in, in, in the quiet with the Lord, pray, do whatever you need to do. And then whenever you're ready on your own, you can stand up and take communion remembering Jesus who made a way for us. Let's pray. Father, grateful for my brother Harold and the word that you put on his heart to share and the way that it, it spoke to the church this morning. Grateful that you're the one who sees, sees our works good and bad and who foresaw, <laughs> foresaw the bad before the foundations of the earth and made a plan to redeem those works by sending Jesus, whose work is perfect, and, and who, who came as a substitute so that we can have his life in place of our life, his works in place of our works. God, I just pray that we would remember, revel in the grace that was shown through the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Thanks so much for listening to our Sunday service. If you're interested in joining us in the future, you can find us at 17766 Cleveland Avenue Northwest on Sunday mornings at 10. Additionally, we host a meal every first and third Sunday after service in order to fellowship with one another. 
Visit aseatforyou.org for more information. We hope you'll join us next week. Go in peace.